unity, but not just any unity. That's the core of our discussion as we strive to get a better handle on this concept of the Trinity. Let's get back into the discussion now. Here's George. So back to looking at the unity of God and the understanding that Christians have of the Trinity. And I asked the question just before the break, is this about number or nature or uniqueness or otherness or what? So let's look. The word translated as one from the Hebrew is echad. But the word echad, though it is singular, can also be used in describing a composite unity. And it's used that way in the Old Testament. Here's one example. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Two persons yoked together, joined in marriage, are called one flesh, echad, the same word used to describe God in the Shema. There are other times when the word one is used in the Old Testament to describe this composite unity. Here, God directs that two sticks become one. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, take a stick of wood and write on it, belonging to Judah and the Israelites associated with him. Then take another stick of wood and write on it, Ephraim's stick, belonging to Joseph and all the house of Israel associated with him. Join them together in one stick so that they will become one in your hand. In fact, the original Hebrew is even more intense about oneness than the English translation reveals. It reads something more like this. It's admittedly quite awkward in English. This is my translation from the Hebrew. And you, son of Adam, you take for you one stick and write on it for Judah and for sons of Israel, partner of him and partners of him, take one stick and write on it for Joseph, stick of Ephraim, and all the house of Israel, partner of him and partners of him, and join one, two, one for you to one stick that they become ones in your hand. Every place you see the word or hear the word one, it is the Hebrew echad. The point here is that the word used in Hebrew for one does not preclude a unity of parts, such as trinity. It doesn't prove God is a trinity, of course, but it demonstrates that this possibility is not outside of the normative use of the Hebrew word for one. A kingdom, a nation, a city, a family, a book, a house, a sentence, a meal, an hour, a person, an atom, a neutron. Each of these is one thing, but each is also a gathering of parts that compose that one thing. We might even say that there is nothing in human experience that is not a composite of other parts. And even the Shema leaves open the possibility of this result. Thus, the idea that God is one does not contradict the idea that there are three persons in one God, not even in the Old Testament language about God. It doesn't prove it, but it doesn't preclude it. There's more. You probably remember the story of Abraham and Sarah in Genesis 18. God appeared to Abraham at the Oaks of Mamre, While he was sitting at the entrance of his tent, 
It was the hottest part of the day. He looked up and saw three men standing. He ran from his tent to greet them and bowed before them. This encounter is also the subject of a very famous icon by Andrei Rubilev, discussed back in Chapter 8. It's titled Trinity, and it's a drawing of those three men as they visit Abraham and Sarah. These three men are referred to in Genesis as God. Does this prove God is a trinity? No, but it is more than suggestive. Here's another. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. That from Genesis 1. What this illustrates is a complexity in the nature of God. That is, the one God that is, is not an undifferentiated, impenetrable, pure singularity. In fact, such an ideal is more platonic than biblical. The God of Scripture is robust, emotional, and complex. Still another, and note that the singulars and plurals you'll hear in the English are there in the Hebrew. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now let's unpack that just for a moment. God creates man and woman. Man is from a Hebrew word, Adam, meaning mankind. Not a male, but male and female. Male and female, God created mankind in our image. One could even deduce from this that God is a duality of persons in one God, male and female. And I'm not suggesting this, but rather I cite it to show that Scripture implies more than one is present in the Godhead. More. In Genesis 11, the people had decided they were going to build a tower up to heaven so they could climb up and see God, the Tower of Babel. God decides this is arrogant on their part and decides to put an end to their enterprise. Here is what it says. The plural is in the Hebrew, and this is God speaking. Come, let us go down and confuse their language, so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the whole face of the earth." God says this, to whom let us go down and confuse their language? God says this, to whom? One singular being says this to himself, let us go down? I suppose this could be some sort of majestic royal circumlocution. Some have argued this. But if so, it is quite odd. The plain reading would imply some one speaking to another one or to other ones. And there's still more complexity. 
Consider this parallel between Psalm 33 and John 1. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. That's from Psalm 33. And then from John 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. John 1 is a parallel to Psalm 33. Both imply some agency, some part of God, the Word, as the means by which everything is made. Note also, the breath of his mouth in Psalm 33 is the same word as the Spirit of God that moved over the waters in Genesis 1.1. Psalm 33 could be understood to imply a trinity of persons in one God. Another hint is from Proverbs 8. This is rather stunning. It is declared to be the voice of wisdom— personified, who was with God at the beginning of creation, and with whom the world was made, and in whom God delighted. And here's the quote. This is wisdom speaking. When he prepared the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he established the clouds above, when he strengthened the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit, so that the waters would not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him as a master craftsman. And I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him, rejoicing in his inhabited world, and my delight was with the sons of men. Now therefore listen to me, my children, for blessed are those who keep my ways." Hear instruction and be wise, and do not disdain it. Blessed is the man who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting at the posts of my doors. For whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. Of course, some might assert that this personification of wisdom is mere poetic license, an indirect and elegant way to speak of wisdom, and not any sort of proof of any other person in the Godhead. But such an easy dismissal of the self-referential language seems like hand-waving. It simply dismisses what it cannot explain. We will come back to more of the Trinity in more depth even more than now, next time when we gather again. Be with me then. Well, poetic license certainly does make the concept of the Trinity easier to deal with, but let's face it, it robs us of some of the wonder and awe that is our God. Thank you, George, for this fascinating discussion, which we look forward to continuing next time we're together. In the meantime, we want to remind you that what we believe and why this program is based on the book of the same name, a book which you can obtain at the website, whatwebelieveinwhy.com, where you can get your copy and find other resources to help you as you wrestle with a growing faith and a deeper understanding of what your relationship to God is all about. And we hope you'll join us next time for another edition of What We Believe and Why.